0: Anybody have uh, regrets of too much food or too many late nights or good times from the Christmas season? Are our belt buckles feeling any additional pressure? You know, it is just a few weeks ago that we celebrated Christmas, the incarnation of God the Son, God enfleshing Himself. That's what incarnation means, God taking on our humanity, becoming one of us. Christians, and especially I'm thinking for Lion and Lamb, I'm thinking of our Christmas Eve celebration, just a great, sweet time of reflection and texts and songs about God becoming one of us, Emmanuel. So Christians and the church around the world celebrated God giving us good news of great joy. But we qualify that by saying that was true of Christians and the church, certainly not of the world generally. So, for instance, estimates right now of world population are about 7.3 billion people. 7.3 billion. Of those, about 2.2 billion profess Christianity in one form or another. Now, it would be difficult to know of that 2.2 billion how many of those are Christian because they were born into a Christian family, it's an ethnic background, it's a historic or cultural background, don't know how many of those, it's true that they have personal faith in Christ, but they're under that big umbrella of Christianity. Apart from the 2.2 billion though, consider this, 1.6 billion Muslims were not celebrating Jesus as Savior in December. Neither were a billion Hindus. Neither were 1.5 billion Sikhs, Buddhists, Taoists, Spiritists, and others represented by one religious brand or another, and that would leave out the remaining billion agnostics and non-religious as well. So to put a fine point on it, while the church and Christians generally were celebrating the incarnation, God coming down into our midst, this is the exception. This is not the rule. We live in a Christ-rejecting world. And I think sometimes we forget that and it's like we're playing church or we're playing house, but we forget that the Savior Christians follow is a rejected Savior and King. And Christians follow someone who by the world today, historically and in His own day during the incarnation, was not accepted, but was in fact betrayed and rejected. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel this morning. This is the second to last in the Son of Man series. And we've said on the front end of the study, a Son of Man was a key term out of the Old Testament, specifically out of the book of Daniel. It was a term of great honor because the Son of Man was the one who went up to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and received an eternal kingdom. So when Jesus used that term in the Gospels of Himself, it was a key term of glory and honor. But the truth is, when you look at how Luke uses the phrase, from Jesus' lips usually, Son of Man, in his gospel, you'll see that more than any other theme it's tied to, it's tied to his betrayal and his rejection, nine times. So we think of the Son of Man in his second coming, and about six times it's used in that reference. But more than any other theme in Luke's Gospel, Son of Man is tied to Jesus' betrayal and rejection. And that's the way we want to look at this this morning. Son of Man, Jesus in His rejection and crucifixion. Now, when Jesus came to the earth and was rejected, uh, that rejection was somehow not new to the earth and it wasn't even new to Judaism. I mean, Jesus' rejection in the Incarnation, that followed a long tradition in history I hope you have a study sheet. We're going to walk through a little bit of history this morning, specifically the Old Testament, but consider Adam and Eve. Go back to our first forebears and consider where they were and who and what they knew. So there they are in Eden, and you know, Adam knew God personally. Adam sprang from God's hand, the dust. God breathed into the dust. Adam becomes a living being. Adam knew God had laid him down in a sleep by which his rib was removed. Adam knew Eve was made from him by God for him. They both have this personal knowledge of God from Genesis 3.8 after they sinned. It says they knew the sound of the Lord their God walking in the garden. They had heard Him before. We understand probably this is not the incarnation, but this is God the Son taking on a temporary form by which He could come down and personally fellowship and interact with them. So they knew Him personally. And all the delights of the Garden of Eden, right, there's only one prohibition, all the delights there are straight from His hand. Their physical perfection, their ability to enjoy each other and all the goodness God had put around them, they know that's from God. And yet when you get to Genesis 3 and the story of the temptation, it says this unknown quantity suddenly inserted in the story, the serpent comes in, where is he from? He's a stranger, isn't he? It's the first time he comes up When we read the story, who is this thing? Where is he from? Where is he in the creation account? Doesn't tell us. He's a stranger. He's a stranger to them. The temptation comes and what do our first forebears do? They reject God. They reject his word for the voice of a stranger. They don't even know. They have no idea who the serpent is. A stranger from out of the blue. And our first parents reject God and God's word. If you go along later, Exodus 32, <clears throat> think of Israel. And God said of Abraham's heirs, I'm going to establish a covenant, Abraham, with you and with your heirs, your progeny. And so think back in your mind, go back to the Exodus, and Israel's been down there in Egypt, and they've expanded, they're a nation, there's a lot of folks there. And by a great outstretched hand, God has performed ten Miraculous signs and miracles the, last, the night of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. And he has delivered this nation of servants from those powerful army and nation on earth. And then he divides the Red Sea and he, he swallows Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea after it closes up. And he leads this covenant people out to this mountain. He said to Moses, I'm going to bring you back here and we'll establish a covenant. And so God comes down on Sinai. For me, this is one of the most visually compelling images in the Bible. So there's thunder and there's lightning and the top of the mountain is on fire. And there's the sound of a trumpet that grows louder and louder and louder. And Moses comes down and he says to Israel, will you enter into a covenant with Yahweh, the one who just led you out of Egypt? He saved you from slavery. Will you enter into a covenant with him? And they say, we'll do it. And so Moses goes back up onto the Fiery Mountain to get the covenant. Do you remember what happens while he's getting the covenant? Now they've said, we're good. We want to be in covenant with You, Lord. So he's up there, and he's up there a little longer than they thought he should be. He's up there 40 days. What's with that? What became of Moses? We're not sure. So what do they do? They know the God that's let them out. They've seen the miracles, Right. But what do they do? First instance, first opportunity, they reject God. They reject the covenant. that They haven't even ratified the full covenant. They've already broken it, right? Because they collect their gold that God gave them from Egypt and they make a golden calf. The golden calf would have look, looked like the apis bulls back there in Egypt. The gods of Egypt that were defeated by Yahweh. They trade him in. The covenant's not even ratified. <clears throat> They've rejected God and the covenant right from the start. That was Israel. You get to 1 Kings 19, and obviously we're just taking quick big steps through some of the Scriptures. Just to make the point, rejection is what we do to God. It's what we do to God. Even as His covenant people. So you get to 1 Kings 19.10, and the, the setting here is Elijah, God's key prophet, you remember, he'd been up at Carmel had this outstanding um, conflict with the prophets of Baal. And, and again, God has demonstrated Himself in power and glory. If you remember the story, all the bulls up there on the altar and, and the prophets of Baal cry and call and cut themselves, but there's no fire from heaven. But Elijah puts the offering up there and has it covered in water and God answers by fire and consumes the, the offering, right? Right? But Jezebel tells Elijah, dude, I've got your number, your toast, your history. And so what does he do? He runs. He runs as fast as he can, runs away, runs down south, away from Jezebel. And when he does, and God says, hey, Elijah, by the way, what are you doing down here? And this is what Elijah says. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. Now, he's making a point to God, God, I'm I'm the only one left but he's not. He's feeling sorry for himself. But what he says here is true. God, your covenant people have forsaken your covenant. They have abandoned your altars. They're not sacrificing to you. And they've killed your spokesman, the prophets, by the sword. That's pretty clear, powerful rejection. For sure. This is God's covenant people. By the way, we're not just poking at Israel or Judaism when we say this, right? So... We get to Romans 1. Now, probably very few of us in here are of Jewish background. Most of us are what we call Gentiles. We're non-Jewish, right? We're from among the nations. So how have our forebears done with accepting Yahweh, the Creator, Omnipotent God, the loving, redeeming God of Israel and Sinai and Egypt and Deliverance? How how have we done? Paul, in making his case that all of humanity is guilty before God, not just of sin, but of volitionally, consciously rejecting God, rejecting the knowledge of God. Paul says in making the case, he ends up in Romans 3 to say, all of sin, all fall short. But he gets there by way of the Gentiles. Those are our ancestors. And he says this, Romans one twenty-one. although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to Him They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we're not poking fingers in the eyes of the Jews in Israel. We're saying, you know what, that's true of our ancestors too. And the imagery there is, here's God, here's the light of His revelation. Our ancestors, the the Gentiles, of one stripe or another, they say, here's God, here's the light. We turn our back. We turn a cold shoulder to God. We reject God and we embrace lies instead again when we say in the incarnation jesus is rejected this is simply more of the same because we've been rejecting god as a race from day one through god's covenant people israel to us today in the incarnation we'll walk through some of this too by the way i want to hang my hat here rejection is the theme and out of this this is what i hope today um, I'm convinced that that the church and, and uh, the church broadly, and that doesn't exempt us, I'm convinced that the church, especially in the West today, we look like the church of Laodicea. We're lukewarm towards God and these things. The best of us. And I'm convinced for myself that if we don't engage our hearts... And our wills and our emotion with an overriding joy and purpose and love and affirmation will continue being lukewarm, fearful Christians. And in our own quiet ways, we will reject either Christ or we will reject Him in the face of others. In other words, we won't claim Him as we can and should. You know, when we talk about Christians being fearful of sharing the gospel with others, as if evangelism is the problem, evangelism is not the problem. Do you know if I'm excited about Christ, I don't have a problem talking to others about Christ. If, if, my, if love in my heart is overflowing for Christ, you don't have to poke me in the backside to get me to talk to others about Christ. So when we say, I'm afraid to talk to others about Jesus... We really have an idolatry problem. We fear men instead of God. And we love the approval of men more than we love God. So really what we want to get at when we're talking about this theme of rejection, at the end of the day, we want to bring this home to ourselves and say, Lord, in what ways have I rejected you? In what ways have I rejected knowing you, Jesus, or being associated with you? And in what ways does my heart, do my emotions, my affections, and my will need to be engaged in Christ and His things so that I am free to embrace Him in all the ways that I can and should freely let the chips fall where they may with whatever anyone else thinks about that. That's what we want to get out of this. So, to Jesus in the Incarnation. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us wise men, they weren't Jewish. They were were wise men. They saw a star. They traveled far. They came to worship this newborn king of Israel. But what does the king of Israel do? Herod. He's closer geographically. He's an Edomite, okay? He's He's not Jewish. But he's the king of Israel. And what's his response to God on earth? Murder. Let's kill him while he's an infant. Kills all the little children, all the little boys around Bethlehem. You go to Luke 4. Do you remember this? So Jesus has been in the wilderness. He's been tempted 40 days. He's come through just fine. He's good to go. And his ministry is beginning, his public ministry. And so where does he start? He goes home. He goes to the town he grew up in. He goes to the synagogue he grew up in. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He reads Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And what does the term Messiah or Christ mean? It means the anointed one. And in Jewish literature, in the Old Testament, the, not, not a, the anointed one. The one anointed above all others. The Son of Man. The one out of Daniel 7. Jesus reads that and says, Guys. Friends, family, relatives, neighbors here in my synagogue. Today you've heard that. I'm it. I'm the anointed one. What's their response? They take him to the cliff and they're going to throw him off. Thank you very much. Jesus reception in his hometown among his neighbors, friends and relatives. They would have murdered him if they could. We call that rejection, don't we? Uh, think of John the Baptist in John 7. By the way, you know, sometimes you'll share the gospel with someone and they'll say, well, if you share it in a little different way, if this part of the message was different or that part, I would believe or I would accept. And I say, that's that's not the problem. That's never the problem. The truth isn't the problem. So Jesus says of John the Baptist, his herald, Luke uh, Luke 7, <clears throat> Jesus what should I compare this generation that's rejecting me? What should I compare them to? Well, they're like kids. They're playing in the market. And they say to John, hey, we played, what did we play? We played the flute. You didn't dance, John. You were kind of hard-nosed, John. Too hard-nosed for me. You didn't dance. But then we sang a dirge and you didn't weep, Jesus. Because John came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. We don't believe he's from God. He's not from Yahweh. He is a demon. He's too radical. He's out. He's eating locusts. I mean, give me a break. He's not my kind of guy. I don't believe what he has to say. So, but Jesus says, but you say of the Son of Man, he's come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, it doesn't matter which side of this they played, they're not going to accept God or His messenger. So the herald and the one He heralded are both rejected in Israel by those who should have been looking for Jesus as Messiah. And we'll go through a few of these verses here in in which Jesus is using this term Son of Man relative to His rejection. So He passes through a Samaritan village. This is in uh, Luke 9. He's heading to Jerusalem. Now this group of Samaritans rejects Him because He's not staying with them. You know, there's animus between the Samaritans and the Jews. And he's going to Jerusalem. And they don't like him. They reject him because he's not hanging with them. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. But someone comes to him and they say, Jesus, wherever you go, that's where I'll go. I'm with you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, guys, even here in Israel, I have no place I can call home. I have no place that I can go. And I say, this is home. They accept me here. I'm good to go. No place on earth for the Son of Man to call home. In Luke 9.22, Peter has just told Jesus, to Jesus' query, Who who am I? Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Anointed One. You're Christ. You're Messiah. To which Jesus says, The Son of Man, Luke 9.22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed on the third day, be raised. In spite of Peter's confidence and claiming Jesus, Jesus says, this won't be the norm. I'm still going to Jerusalem and I will be rejected. So fully, I will be killed in Jerusalem. A little later in Luke 9, crowds were marveling at Jesus' power because he'd cast a demon out of a boy. And knowing his disciples would be tempted to get the wrong idea, they're overjoyed and the, the crowds, they're marveling, they're excited, they're enthusiastic about Jesus in the moment. And Jesus says, take these words to heart, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. In other words, don't let the temporary popularity fool you. That's not how this is going to end. I am still going to be rejected. By the way, you know, if you look back in American history or world history generally when we talk about periods of revival or great awakenings in our own nation's history, those are the exceptions, aren't they? They're not the rule. When you see large numbers of people repenting and believing, the reason we remember them is because they're the exception. They're not the rule. The rule is, Jesus says, rejection. Historically, that's where things fall out. In Luke 18.31, Jesus takes the twelve aside and He said, We are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So here's God the Son, who with the Father and the Spirit is the author of the Bible, the Scriptures He's thinking about here. And He says, All those things that our messengers, My messengers said about Me, they're going to be fulfilled. So some of the things I suspect Jesus is thinking about are like Psalm 2 verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord against Yahweh and against his anointed. Jesus knows when I go to Jerusalem I'll be opposed by the Roman government as well as the Jews. Or Psalm 22:14 thinking specifically of the crucifixion. There, David had written, as a prophet, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. This graphic representation of crucifixion. And this is what Jesus knows is around the corner for Him. Psalm 69.20, I'll let you read later. Isaiah 53, most people know the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53, the most graphic narration before time of what Jesus would experience in his rejection and crucifixion. And again, assuming this is probably some of the text Jesus is thinking about when he tells his disciples, this is what I am going to, despised, rejected by men. Again, this is the norm. This is what humanity does. To God and our Savior, we reject Him. Rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces, despised, we esteemed Him not. Jesus knows all this awaits Him in Jerusalem. Luke 24, 7, after the fact on the road to Emmaus, He tells those two disciples, He said, Guys, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. This was coming. I knew it. No surprise to me, though it might have been to you. Last along this line related to Judas and betrayal, Luke twenty-two twenty-two. The Son of Man is to go just as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. After he sweats blood in his agony in Gethsemane, Jesus says to Judas, Judas there in the garden as the guards come and the torches and swords by night. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So this isn't just rejection by strangers, is it? This is betrayal by an intimate, by a fellow. Betrayal and rejection. In Luke 20, Jesus told a parable, and this sort of trades on the whole theme about rejection as the norm. Jesus tells a parable starting at verse 9 in which He said, This is what life is like. A landowner created a vineyard. He got it all set up and he rented it out to renters. And he left and he went away. He's at a great distance for a long period of time. He sends a servant back to collect the rent from the vineyard. And they beat the servant. And so he sends another servant and another and they beat and abuse them as well. And the last one he says he sends is his son because he thinks surely they will respect my son. My son. But the renters see the son and they say, here's the heir. We'll kill him and we'll seize the vineyard for ourselves. And Jesus says, this is the history of man even with God's covenant people on earth towards him. What have they done consistently? Our forebears and the Jewish covenant people. Well, we abuse God's servants and we reject the son. Jesus says, that's the story of humanity. That's the story of the rejection of God on earth. Acts 7.52, Stephen makes the same point. In Acts 4.25, the early church as they're praying, they cite Psalm 2, the same things about Jesus being rejected. Uh, Kathy and I and Jen were in uh, Kansas City on Thanksgiving Day this last year. And I'd always wanted a Thanksgiving where uh, we were free of responsibilities at home. Kathy wouldn't have to cook. We'd go down to the plaza and we'd go to a nice restaurant and we'd enjoy a nice meal that someone else cooked. And then we'd hang around and we'd watch the lighting of the lights on the plaza. So we did that. The food was great. By the way, it was a great time. Nice restaurant. Watch the sunset through the glass uh, wall. It was, it was lovely. And then we go. It was cold out and they've got a stage in the middle of the street there in the plaza. And we're waiting, right, for the countdown, whatever time it was, maybe 7 o'clock, they're going to flip the switch and all the lights on the plaza will go on. Well, until that occurred, we're with thousands of people in a crowd and they've got a stage and they've got one singer after another and they've got an MC, And he's one of the TV personalities out of Kansas City. Sorry, I think his name's Gary. And he's obnoxious because he's really trying to keep the enthusiasm pumped up. And so this is what he keeps coming back to he keeps saying how many of you are Royals fans oh the cheers go on and on and on right how many of you love the Kansas City Royals we do we do we do enthusiastic now why is that why was that I'm not sure he said that on bygone years but he did this last November why was that because the Royals went to the World Series they're winners The Royals are winners. And who's a Royals fan when they go to the World Series? Everybody. How many blue hats did you see in Topeka, Kansas last fall? I saw a lot. Royals fans are everywhere. Where were those fans before last year? Cut their number in half or two-thirds or three-fourths? Who knows, right? We love winners, don't we? We want to hook our wagon to winners, the popular and the successful, right? Who wants to hang out with losers anyway? So my heroes, they're winners. They're not losers. So think about this in the context of Jesus. To the world, Jesus is a loser with a capital L. He's a loser. How do you think the world that thinks Jesus is a loser might treat or think of those who would follow Jesus? Losers too, right? Who wants to associate with a loser? Jesus knew that. He says in Matthew 10:25, If they have called the master of the house Bilzebul, Lord of the flies, it's a title for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's warning his disciples, isn't he? Guys, if they malign me, and you follow me, and you identify with me, you don't reject me, they'll malign you too. He's very clear in John 15, 20, if they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If then, if they persecuted Me, they'll persecute you if you associate with Me. If I'm your hero and you make that known to others, you'll be rejected too. You'll get the same treatment I got, Jesus says. Now let me ask you, if you've never been rejected because you're a Christian, if you've never had somebody malign you, write you off, mock you, make fun of you, reject you in one way or another, would it not be an appropriate question to ask ourselves if we are not closet Christians, if we are not hiding our association with Jesus, that we might, we might say to ourselves, I claim Jesus, I love the Lord, I just don't let other people know that. You know, I'll bet most of us on a good day might be closet Christians. If we don't have some experience of rejection for Christ, we'll qualify this. I want to be careful here. We should be asking ourselves, why is that? If the world we inhabit rejects Christ, and, I'm not, and I never experience rejection, what does that say about my witness for Christ? Max Stiles, who's a well-known, very successful evangelist, uh, said, many fear the raised fist. You can imagine if you came up to my presence and suddenly I'd nowhere. I raise my fist in front of your face, you feel imminent harm. Man. I'm afraid, I cower. Max Stiles says, but we fear the raised eyebrow. What does that mean? That means you really believe that? You know, I, I probably can't raise them right, but you, you believe that creation stuff? You think Jesus is the one to follow? You, you really? The incredulity, right? Max Stiles accurately says, "We fear the thought that someone else won't know that we're cool and hip and we're intelligent. They'll think we're a little backwards, backwoods, unrefined. We fear the raised eyebrow. I think that's us, guys. I think that's us. Do we fear the rejection of man more than God?" Do we love the approval of others more than the approval of God? See, I think we do. I think that's the idolatry that we're talking about. Think of this. And this is why I say if we don't engage at this at an emotional gut level, we'll stay in the closet. If you're married, hopefully this strikes home, and if you're not married, you can imagine this. So if I was in a room, let's just say a party with my wife, She's across the room. And someone comes up and points out my wife, not knowing my relationship, and makes fun of my wife. Can you believe her? Or if it's your husband, what a jerk. Look at that guy. What a dork. How would you feel? You should be offended and insulted. And you should say something like, that's my spouse whom I love. Don't talk about them that way in my presence. Thank you very much. We wouldn't have to be insulting, right? We, we wouldn't have to be ungodly, right? But if we found ourselves saying, yeah, do you believe her? Who, who put her together today? Who told her that dress was okay? You know, or, no, I don't know. I've heard bad things about him too. So make this personal. When we're out... Among others, are we afraid to identify as Christ? Yeah, I, I don't know about him either. I, I've, heard, I've heard weird things about Christians too. I'm not sure about that Bible thing. You see where the temptation goes. If we fear men or if we value the approval of men more than we fear God and value his approval, if we love people more than God, guys, will stay in the closet we will publicly make some form of rejection even if it is only our silence I'm simply not telling others that I know Jesus I'm not communicating the gospel I I didn't say anything bad about Jesus I didn't say I'm not a Christian but by our silence oftentimes we're simply hiding we're hiding our association with Christ so if you've never experienced some kind of rejection because you're a Christian We need to ask ourselves some hard questions, some penetrating questions. Uh, Now, let me qualify this on the other side. Some of us, we're good at getting rejection because we like to be obnoxious. That is not what we're talking about, okay? Not what we're talking about. So Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, for the cause of Christ, you are blessed. If it's for Christ, you're blessed. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. Or we could just add to that list. For being a jerk, for being less than thoughtful, for speaking when you should be quiet and listening. The list could go on and on, right? There's a number of reasons we can suffer and be rejected that have nothing to do with Christ. And then he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name so we're talking here not about I've got an abrasive personality and I say that's really because I'm a Christian that's not what we're saying for the cause of Christ we live in a time in which coming out is popular isn't it absolutely so lesbians gays transgenders I'll I'll forget the list I never get it right LBGT lesbians bisexual gay transgender we're coming out of the closet and and by that we mean this right I'm not ashamed of who I am or what I do I'm not ashamed and so I'm making public who I am and what I do that's what we mean when we say we're coming out of the closet is this not amazing so we live in a culture in which the appropriate thing is to declare our sins And say we're not ashamed of our sins. We revel in our sins. In this culture, what better time for Christians to say we revel in our Savior. We delight in our God. And there's something for you to delight in here too. When I say this, guys, I don't want to just point out the sexual sins that are now front and center in in all of our culture. We all sin. No question. And Christians sin with the best of them. Read your Bibles. Christians sin with the best of them. So we're not simply pointing fingers at others, but we are saying this. If the culture we inhabit is proud to declare their sinfulness, should Christians not Be ready to declare our allegiance to a loving God and Savior. A righteous God and Savior. Should we not be willing and able to stand up in this culture and say, and I don't mean with pride, and I don't mean to poke fingers in other people's eyes, I mean appropriately, Jesus is my God and Savior. Is this not the best of times to do that? Uh, When Kathy and I grew up, most of you know we were Roman Catholic. (coughs) Grew up here in Topeka in parochial schools. I was a Hayden Wildcat. At least in groups, and specifically at sporting events, you know where the testosterone already starts to be high, right? I'm thinking football games and basketball games. There's the opposition team, and there's the Hayden Wildcats. Now, you know, I don't think they do this anymore. I could be wrong, but but it was popular back in the day. We would get these fish cheers, you know, like fish feeding on the surface of the water. The opposition would mock us for our Roman Catholicism. And the Flying Nun TV show was on. I don't remember what the, nun, the thing for that was, but they would do the Flying Nun too. And they thought, they thought you know they're getting their digs in. Well, guys, we loved it. We ate it up. Because we loved, at least in that group setting, we loved being identified for our identifiable religious subculture. We loved it. We reveled in it. It was a badge of honor. We said, bring it on. You now, in, in private, it might have been a little different thing. But in the group, we were good to go. We were going strong. We were going strong. Now, most of us at that time, I was not a Christian. And, and by the way, please don't hear me saying Roman Catholics cannot be Christians. I was very much not a Christian as a Roman Catholic, however. And none of my friends were either. Okay, But compared to that ignorant but religiously identified young guy ready to revel in the identification as Roman Catholic, shouldn't we as, I hope, thoughtful, baptized, believing followers of Jesus Christ be ready to see rejection for Christ also as a badge of honor? That's what Peter says. That's what Jesus said. And let's wind down with these verses. Luke 6.22, going back to that phrase, the Son of Man. Jesus said, "Blessed are you when people hate you, and they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He said, "You are blessed. You're blessed." In Luke 9:26, Jesus said negatively, "Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed." This isn't a salvation verse, by the way. Will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus is putting the future in their sights, he's putting the future in their imaginations and their thinking. He's saying, Guys, there's going to be this time when I come back and all the holy angels with me. It's the conclusion of the the great battle between heaven and hell, and I win. And I'm coming back with my angels. You don't want to be ashamed. You don't want to have been ashamed of Me where I can't come and laud You for being part of My effort on the earth. It's a warning. Don't be ashamed of Me, Jesus says. Luke 9.26 And then in 12, 8, Luke 12.8 I tell you, everyone who acknowledges Me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Now again, I think we want to We want to involve our gut, our heart, our emotions in this. And use your imagination to do this. Read some of Revelation or read Daniel 7. And see that in your mind. So your future in mind, if you're a believer, your future in mind, think of Revelation 4 and 5. Angels too numerous to count. Angels whose glory is such that John the Apostle, who knows better, bows down to worship them. The throne of God in the middle. Angels too numerous to count the redeemed of all the ages around the throne, and there you are in the middle. What, what would it mean for Jesus to say, Bart, you did a great job, and I commend you. That's what Jesus is saying. I'll acknowledge your name before the angels of heaven. Guys, there is no fear, there's no love here in opposition to Christ, that you will ever savor in His presence that will that will have seemed Worth it if it means rejecting Christ now or failing to love Him or identify Him with Him now compared to that future but sure moment. It's not if it comes, it's when. And you and I will join that heavenly host and Jesus, like a great victorious King, rewards those who were part of His effort. That's the way the Bible ends, by the way. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I come back as a conquering king. And you won't be ashamed of me in that moment. And that's the appeal now. Jesus says, I'm coming back and I win. Don't be ashamed of me now. Jesus says, you'll stand in the company of angels and the redeemed. Let me honor you. Let me heap honor on you as one who stood for my name in this time when the war's not over. That's what we want to do. We need to raise our eyes up see Jesus' glory, see our future, and then implant that over our fears of men and our love of other sub-things. If we do that, guys, evangelism's not a problem. If we do that, I don't worry about what other people think of me. I'm free to engage and I'm free to claim Christ. And I'm free to be rejected for Christ. Because when I am, I'm blessed. We want to have that future day in mind. We want to think of Jesus the way one spouse thinks of another. I'm not ashamed of my spouse. I love my spouse. I delight in my spouse. I defend my spouse to others. That's what we're looking for. Jesus was rejected. will be rejected. Now His rejection was for a purpose and a cause, wasn't it? Uh, There's been no one more fully rejected than Jesus. Jesus is starkly hung... Between heaven and earth on the cross. And the texts say he's rejected by men and he is forsaken by God. There's no one who's been rejected or forsaken more fully than Jesus on the cross. Why did he do that? He did that to redeem you and me. The chastisement due my sin fell on Christ. The penalty due my sins and your sins fell on Him. That's why he did it. Why? Why? so that we John one he came to his own Jewish nation they didn't receive him but to as many as received him that can be any of us right he gave the right the power to become children of God he was rejected so we could be accepted into the father's love into the father's household forever and ever and ever we should love Christ we should be willing to be rejected for him not for our obnoxious ways but for Christ. Father, would You help us out of our cowardice, out of our fears of finite men whose life is in our breath. Would You help us to glorify the God of heaven and earth. Would You help us to celebrate and revel in Jesus the Son. Would You help us to identify with Him, Lord, to His honor and glory and also, Father, in the way of proclaiming the hope of eternal life in the message about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done for us and for all. In His name, amen.